I wanted to mention just uh, before we look into the word here as a follow-up to Pastor Greg's announcement about the help in Haiti. One of the things that attracted us to this one particular one we'll do, we may do more, but uh, this one in particular, we were uh, attracted to it because it's so targeted. It, as Pastor Greg mentioned, it's, they're going to t- target uh, believers there who are suffering, but they are not targeting them only. They are intending very deliberately to reach out to the community as well, but they intend to do that in such a way that the community will know that it is the churches there that is helping the community. So they want to do it very deliberately and intentionally as a Christian witness to the community to make sure that they, they see that these are the Christians reaching out to them. Uh, I think that's a, a tremendous thing. There are many opportunities to help, many things you can give toward. And uh, we don't at all mean to say that this, this is the only one, but that was one of the advantages that we, we saw in this one. We're continuing our series today through 1 Corinthians. We are, in the Lord's will, going to finish up 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the title of the message is Divine Calling. Divine Calling. I'll begin reading with verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than men's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, how grateful we are for the gospel of Jesus Christ. How grateful we are for this great revelation of your grace and mercy to us. We're thankful that you have sent us your Son. We're thankful that you have revealed this to us, that we may rejoice in it. 
We ask that you would open the eyes of our minds and our hearts today. Give us a greater grasp of this wonderful truth of your love to us in him. We pray in his name. Amen. The question this passage sets out to answer is simply, why are you a Christian? Or if I could say it with just a little bit different emphasis, why are you a Christian? It's a question that naturally arises here in the the Apostle's discussion. If you can think back the last couple of weeks, you'll see how that's the case. The Corinthians were dividing over the preachers that had been there in their church. Factions were arising around these ministers. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Jesus, and on it goes. Verse 17 hints uh, further that these factions were related in some way to the various styles of the ministry, styles of the preaching perhaps. It had something to do with this matter of human wisdom. But Paul's response to that, you remember we saw last time, was that human wisdom and ability has nothing to do with the success of the gospel. To the contrary, God has set out to destroy human wisdom. And you remember how we saw that last time in verses 18 through 25. The gospel is the message of a crucified Savior. It's a wonderful message. It's a glorious message of a glorious Savior. But the world thinks it's foolish. Because of the natural depravity of our hearts... It seems to us, naturally, that this is a foolish message. And so both Jews and Greeks, he says, refuse the gospel. The very idea of a crucified Savior is just an oxymoron. These two words don't belong together. Crucified Savior. It's foolishness. And why are you preaching to us that such a shamefully defeated man who died in such abject weakness, could be a savior for anyone. And so people naturally think the message is foolish. And yet Paul argues, look what it does. It has amazing power. This message that men and women think, naturally think so foolish, has an amazing power to transform lives and to bring us into fellowship with God. And in the process of it all, then, human wisdom has been brought to nothing. This great transformation of lives has never been brought about by anything that the world has to offer. This bringing us to peace with God is something that is accomplished not by anything the world has to offer. It is accomplished simply by this message that the world thinks is so foolish. But you see then, once we have said that, the question immediately arises, how then can anyone be saved at all? You think that the gospel message is foolish. Every heart born in Adam's race thinks naturally that the gospel is foolish. Sin has so disturbed our thinking and our thinking processes that this gospel, which is glorious in itself, is thought to be nonsense. And yet, there's no other way to be saved. And, in fact, it works. 
despite the aversion to the gospel that we all have naturally, we have to see that the gospel has had profound effects in transforming the lives of countless people. Countless people have come to embrace the gospel with all of their hearts, and their lives have been marvelously transformed by it. And the question then comes up, how in the world did that happen? Here you come to people with a gospel message that they think is foolish, and yet these people who think it's foolish come somehow to embrace that gospel with all of their hearts so that their lives are marvelously transformed by it. Well, that's the question of this whole passage that Paul takes up. How do people who think the gospel is foolish come to embrace it with all of their heart? And what is it that makes them change their minds, as it were, so that Christ, who was before someone of indifference or possibly someone, an object of hostility, now becomes the object of such intense, passionate devotion. And so again, the question is, why are you a Christian? My own understanding of theology advanced, I think, quantum leaps when I first faced this question. I was home on Christmas vacation from college, studying theology in college. I was a sophomore. Nobody knows more than a sophomore in college. I had it all. And I was in a discussion with my dad. And he, in the process of the discussion, came up with this question. Fred, you're saved, right? Yes, I am. Our neighbor across the street is not. Why? Why are you saved and he's not? Well, I'm a second-year theology student. I've got the answer to that. I believed and he didn't. That's why I'm saved and he's not. Dad says, yeah, that's right. Now, why did you believe and he didn't? He lucky? He smarter than him? Well, again, I'm a sophomore. <laughs> but I knew that wasn't, that wasn't it. He pressed it. Were well, you less depraved than he is? Sin not affected your heart like it has his? Why did you believe and he didn't? And it dawned on me, ultimately, any difference between me and anyone who's lost is a difference that God made. You can see that that's Paul's answer here in verses 23 and 24. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see the answer? The gospel by itself, powerful as it is, is not enough. But when that gospel is coupled with a divine call, that gospel becomes powerfully effective. Isn't that what he's saying here? This gospel is foolish to all of us. But, verse 24, to those whom God has called, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
Now, you don't have to read these verses many times before you notice that the calling that Paul is describing here, this divine call, is an effectual one. There's a sense in which all men, equally, are called by the gospel. There's a sense in which that is true. But that's not how Paul uses the term calling. When Paul uses this word calling, he's speaking of something that God does that effects in us what he calls us to. Again, you can see that in verse 24. It's foolishness to everybody. But to those whom God has called, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. This gospel, coupled with a divine call, becomes powerfully effective and brings us to that to which it calls us. So it's something like a summons, or maybe even better, a summons issued by the sheriff. It doesn't just call you. It brings you. It is an effectual call. You'll see that again in verse 9, earlier in the chapter, when Paul is still greeting the people of Corinth. He says, God who has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, is faithful. God has called us into the fellowship of his Son. How would you get in? I was called in. And you can see again, the assumption here is that this call is more than just a general one, but it's a specific, effectual, powerful calling that brings about in us that to which he calls us. That's why often in the New Testament, particularly in Paul, but all through the New Testament, we find the called, the called, becomes a kind of title for Christians. Who are Christians? Well, they are those who are the called. And sometimes it's with the article, the called, sometimes not. But we are the called. We are ones whom God has called, verse 9, into the fellowship of, the, of his Son, Jesus Christ. If you'd like to write these down to see them later, Romans chapter 1, verse 6, for example, you also are among those who are the called of Jesus Christ. Jude, verse 1, to those who are the called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 17 verse 14 describes the Christian as called, chosen, and faithful. Well, that's what we have in verse 24 here. We thought the gospel was foolish when we were first met with it. But coupled as it was with a divine call, it was powerfully effective in bringing us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This, then, is the blessedness that belongs to every Christian. We have been called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. This is something of an echo of Matthew chapter 11, verses 24 and 25, where Jesus prays to the Father and says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them unto babes. All right then, the call is an effective one that brings us to faith in Jesus Christ. Now that raises another question here, and I want you to follow the text carefully. Let's push the question a little bit further. Who are these who have been called? Who are 
the called. And you'll notice here there are at least three ways to answer that question. First of all, verse 18, those who are called are those who are saved. If you're one who enjoys marking in your Bible to follow an argument, you might underline or circle that word saved. So on one level, those who are called are those who are saved. That's what he's talking about. Again, pointing up to the simple observation that the call is an effective one. It's what we call irresistible grace. We'll get to that in a minute. So, answer number one. Who are the called? One, they are those who are saved. Look at verse 21 now. Those who are called are those who believe. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. This is the viewpoint from the human side of things. We must submit in trust to God. He offers us a a Savior, his Son, who has been crucified in place of sinners. And in faith, we abandon ourselves to him and come to him believingly, resting on him for our Safety. But then thirdly, who are these who are called? Verse 26, they are those who are chosen. This is actually verses 26 and following. Brothers, think what you were when you were, there's our word, called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So if you're one who likes to mark in your Bible, you might plot this out. I've done this in many of the Bibles that I have. Verse 18, circle the word saved. Draw a line down to verse 22, circle the word believed believe. Verse 24, you might circle the word called. Draw a line to there. Verse 26, again, called. Verse 27, chose, chose. Verse 28, chose. So who are these people who are called? Well, it's those who are saved. Or it's those who believe. Or, if you want to speak in ultimate terms, it's those who were chosen. The gospel that we think and thought was foolish. We thought it was foolish just like other men and women did. Depravity had affected our hearts the same as all others. The difference between us and them is not something found in us. It's just that unlike all of the others, we were not left to our unbelief. But God had chosen us. And because he chose us, In time, he called us. There's no doubt that apart from God's call, we would have continued in our insane rejection of the gospel. That's Paul's whole argument here. We thought it was foolish. And left to ourselves, we would have continued to think the gospel foolish. But the glory of our salvation is exactly this. God has not left us to our stupid unbelief. God has favored us. In eternity past, he chose us. And in time, he called us into the fellowship of his Son.
I'm sure most, if not all of you, can remember how we first, how you first responded to the gospel. It might have been one of outright hostility. At best, our response was one of indifference. You might be one of those who we've seen that when your friend or your family member, whoever it was, came to you with the gospel and began to press it a little bit, you responded with anger. You might have cussed someone for it. You remember your first response to the gospel. Here we learn why our first response to the gospel was not our final response to the gospel. The reason it was not our final response is not that we are less depraved, not that we're more wise, not that we're more naturally inclined to the things of God or anything like that. We had a change of heart, all right. And that change of heart was affected by a divine call. And that's why we sing... T'was grace that taught my heart to fear. It was not just grace that relieved my fears, but grace first taught my heart to fear. This is the divine call. Whenever I touch this subject in teaching or preaching, I'm eager to stress, very eager to stress this, because many people have missed this, I think, to stress that this is not, this is not simply abstract theology. This is the experience, the glorious experience of every believer. Whether he's acknowledged these doctrines or not, this is the experience of every believer. We can remember how we were indifferent to the gospel. We can, you can remember perhaps how you were hostile to the gospel. But like all of the rest of the world, we, we love darkness rather than light. But we can remember how suddenly all of that changed. Suddenly, Jesus was different. Suddenly, Sunday was different. Suddenly, the scriptures were different. No, we were different. God had effected a deep change within. And had powerfully called us into the fellowship of His Son. And effecting that change within us, this glorious gospel of the glorious Savior, suddenly now became apparent to us as glorious. And with all of our hearts, with all of our hearts, we went running to embrace Christ. I remember my own conversion. I am sure not any army in the world could have kept me back that day. God called, and I came. I think we have to be careful here, then, lest we give this theological term, irresistible grace, a bad name. There have been those who have caricatured irresistible grace in a wrong way, misunderstanding what it is we're teaching there have been those who portray this doctrine as though we are teaching that there are people out there who are saying, No, no, I don't want to be saved. No, no, please, no, no, no. Brought me in. I don't want this. Now, there's a sense. There's a sense in which, as one of the Puritans has said, 
God saved me with my full consent against my will. Naturally, we were disposed against God. But this call, you see, was effective in such a way that he effected a change of heart. So that with all of our heart, with all of our hearts, we decided to follow Jesus. Some years ago, we must be talking 17, 18 years ago, something like that. My sister, my younger sister, was dating a fellow who really was just head over heels for her. And they had a good relationship. He was clearly wanting to make something of this. He, he had wedding bells in his eyes. She wasn't so sure about that. And for a period there, the relationship was a little rocky. She broke up with him. This guy was just, I'm telling you, he was lovesick. For some reason or other, looking back, it was a pretty slick move, actually. He looked, searched out my dad for counsel. So he went to my dad for counsel on this. My dad talked to him. He'd come, dad would come back to us, and he'd say, man, that guy's got it bad. He said, I think it's just his love for Ruthie is borders on idolatry. He said, I think he loves Ruthie more than I love your mother. He had it bad. They would get back together. They'd break up. He'd send flowers. He'd send candy. He'd send nice notes. He'd see her at church. He'd make sure he talks to her, maybe ask her, oh, you should get some coffee afterwards, you know. Hint, hint. The guy just wouldn't give up. And I remember in the process of all that, toward the end of it all, I was talking to Ruthie on the phone, and I said, so what's the status with you and Neil? She says, i got to tell you, it's pretty hard to keep rejecting a guy who obviously loves you so much. Today they're happily married. You know, that's something what irresistible grace is, isn't it? Irresistible grace is formally, I guess, a negative term, but there are no negative connotations at all. The whole point is that God comes and overwhelms us with a sense of his glory, and overwhelms us with a sense of his greatness, and overwhelms us with a sense of his great love for us, so that with all of our hearts, with all of our hearts, we go running to this one who before we thought was so irrelevant. Isn't that our testimony? That's irresistible grace. This is divine calling. As J.I. Packer has said, I think, very well, grace proves irresistible simply because it removes the disposition to resist. God comes to us in grace and opens our eyes, as it were, to see the real, objective glory of Jesus Christ to which we were blind before. And when we see it, there's no holding us back. The bottom line is that we know in our heart of hearts that we would continue in our unbelief today and our rejection of the gospel had not God favored us in such a way as to effect our faith.
Last week I mentioned an illustration from Harry Ironside, the well-known dispensational Bible teacher. I have another illustration from Harry Ironside. I know that shocks some of you that I would speak so favorably about a dispensationalist. It's good for you. Harry Ironside said that he was traveling in the Deep South one Wednesday evening, driving along, and he wanted to stop at a church, and he saw one church that was open, that people were there. He was a little late, obviously, for the service. The service was already going on, so he pulled in, sat in the back row. It was a black church. He sat in, and when he sat down, they were already in the midst of a testimony service where people were giving their testimony of praise to God. And one man, he said, stood up and gave just a marvelous, marvelous testimony of God's grace that he had had a life of sin, but that God had come to him and turned him to Christ. And what a glorious experience it has been ever since. And Ironside emphasizes that it really was just a, a marvelous testimony of God's grace. The man leading the service, he said, evidently was not as well acquainted with God's grace as the man who had given the testimony. And after the man was done and sat down, the man leading the service said, Now, Henry, you've told us about God's part in it. What about your part? The man stood up quickly, Ironside says, says, Oh, yes. He said, I've done my part, too. He said, For 30 years, I've done my part. For 30 years, I ran away from God just as fast as my feet would take me. But God done run me down. And he brought me to Jesus. Yes, sir, I done my part, and God done his. Oh, this theology that Paul presents here is anything but abstract and theoretical, isn't it? This is our experience. This is God coming after his sheep and bringing us in. Well, there's the doctrine of the passage, but... Obviously, Paul is not done yet. He points out some evidence, some evidence that's ready at hand in the Corinthian church that points out that this is indeed how God saves. And that's verses 26 through 28. And I want you to see that again. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the things that are dis- uh, and the despised things and things that are not to nullify the things that are. Notice the people here who are called. How does Paul describe them? First, from the negative, they're not wise, not many of them, not many influential, not many of noble birth, but here's what they were. Well, this is great for your self-esteem, isn't it? Verse 27, the ones he chose, that's us, are foolish, weak, lowly, despised, zeros. Know what he says? There it is. And what Paul is arguing here simply is that if the critical move in salvation belonged to us, if we could trace the critical move in salvation back to anything about us, the deciding factor in salvation, if it had anything to do with us, our wisdom, our move, our choice, our decision, our will, our inclination, something like that, then certainly salvation would in large part belong to the wise and the mighty and the influential of this world because surely 
they would be the ones who'd figure it out. That's his argument. Think about it. Is there anything difficult about the gospel? That's a really simple message, isn't it? God has come in grace and provided a Savior for our needs. He's just what we need. And you may have him freely if you will just come to him in faith. There's nothing difficult about this. But you've noticed it when you've witnessed for Christ as well, that the problem is not simply an intellectual one, is it? I'm convinced that if the problem were just an intellectual one, I could convert any thinking man on the planet. It's too easy. But you don't have to witness long, do you, before you recognize the problem is not just an intellectual one. It's a problem with bias. I don't want it. Get out of my face. That's foolish. gospel, while it has depths that we'll explore forever, is still a very simple message. And surely, if we were not so bound in our own foolishness and sin, surely the world's smartest people would be the ones who would be saved. But is that the case? And what Paul is saying here is, not, not to help your self-esteem at all, but he's saying, brothers, just look around the congregation. Are you, are you the world's big shots? Look around at each other. And notice, not many wise by human standards. Not many of noble birth. Not many big movers and shakers. Influential people. Face it, brothers and sisters, we're not the crowd that the world looks to when it needs help. And so, verse 26, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many influential, not many of noble birth. Now, it doesn't say not any. Spurgeon used to talk about the Countess of Huntington, who used to say that how thankful she was for that letter M. Not many. It doesn't say not any. And there have been some influential, some of noble birth, some big fish. In Paul's own ministry, there were some exceptions to this. Erastus in Corinth, the city treasurer, was converted. Crispus and Sosthenes were converted. They were leaders of the synagogue. These are relatively big fish. The proconsul of Crete was saved in his ministry. In Acts 13, not many, though. The fact remains that God has shown preferential treatment to the poor. God has shown preferential treatment to the unlearned and the outcasts. As Jesus said, I've come to preach the gospel to the poor. It's these nobodies that God has clearly come after. And that God has clearly preferred this world's nobodies is evident by the membership role in the church. That's what Paul's saying here. Look around. Not many of us are the world's big shots. We're just your average, run-of-the-mill kind of people, and in fact, most often, less than that. Well, you say, I thought God was not a respecter of persons. That's right, he's not, and that's why he prefers the poor. 
and the outcasts and the nobodies because they have nothing to commend themselves to him. The whole point of verses 26 through 28 is that God prefers to save the foolish, weak, base, despised zeros. The world's nobodies. In the main, these are the people whom God has chosen and whom he has called. Now, why is that? Paul goes on in these next verses, verses 29 through 31, to tell us that God has a stated reason and purpose in all of this. Why do you think God has chosen the weak nobodies? Verses 29 through 31. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness and holiness and redemption. Therefore, here's his conclusion of the whole thing, as it is written, and here he quotes the prophet, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So, God has a purpose in this. Why does God save in this way? We're pushing the question further. Why does God save in this way that he saves only the world's nobodies? Answer, he saves in this way, so that, so that only he will receive the credit for it. That's the simple answer. Did you know that God is very jealous for his own glory? You know that it would be idolatry to pursue anything higher as more worthy than God, right? God knows it too. And he has as his ambition in all that he does to enhance his own glory. As he says to the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord, that is my name, I will not give my glory to another. Or as he says again, for my own sake, speaking of their deliverance that he promises, for my own sake, for my own sake, he repeats it, I will do this and I will not yield my glory to another. God is very purposeful in all that he does to save only in such a way that only he receives the credit for it. And so, because he won't shame, he won't share the credit in salvation with anyone, he has determined to save in such a way that all will know that. And he will not leave you any room for self-congratulation. He will not leave us to be able to say, well, at least I... He won't have it. Now, he does leave some room for boasting. Did you see that? Verse 31. Therefore, it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the only boasting that he wants to see. He wants people, when they are saved, to turn heavenward and say, he did it. And so in choosing whom he would save, he just didn't include many big shots on the list. There are few, but not many. Because if the church were perceived as a gathering of the world's elite, think about it. That would just confuse and distract matters. People would think that you have to be somebody, that you have to contribute something, that you've got to contribute, that you've got to be powerful or wise or the smartest 
You've got to have something to bring to the table in all of this. People would think that. If the, if the church were a gathering of the world's elite, it would just distract everything. And so God says, no, I'm not going to have that. I've refused human wisdom. Mankind is idolatrous, self-idolatrous enough. What they need to do is worship me. And so what I'll do is this. I'll just save an unlikely bunch of nobodies so that in the end, everyone will know that it must be me. Look around you, Paul says. Just look around the congregation. We're a bunch of the world's nobodies. And we just have to see it. That if we are saved, we've been brought into fellowship with our Creator. It is simply and only His doing and not ours. Isn't it ironic that this teaching that humbles us so much, just makes us glory, doesn't it? Don't you just love it? See, all of the credit and all of the glory go back to God. I remember the days before I was saved. I was saved as a young boy, but I remember the days before I was saved. And I had every reason, humanly speaking, every reason to be disposed positively toward the gospel. And I was brought up in a wonderful home, loving parents. This was part of who we were. My dad was a minister of the gospel. We went to church all the time, of course. And I heard this from before I could understand it. And I heard it in the best of environments. I had every reason to be predisposed to the gospel. And yet the truth of the matter was, when it comes to a personal interest, in the gospel, I was indifferent. And then that one Sunday morning, I walked into church, hadn't a clue what God had in mind. And I heard my dad preach the gospel for the 500th time or something, and yet I heard it for the first time. That gospel, coupled with a divine call, proved powerful. And my eyes were opened, and I saw the glory of Christ, and I went running. And so Paul says, all of your fighting over these ministers, you're acting as though they've affected something. <laughs> God is the one who does the saving. There's so many uses we can make of this. But next verses in chapter 2, Paul applies it to ministry in general. We'll see that next time, Lord willing. But surely there's nothing more important for us to learn through this passage than the simple basic lesson and point that it makes. And that is, salvation is of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's good for us to push that question back as we have today. Why are you saved? Why am I saved? Well, I'm saved because I believe. Why did you believe? Well, I believe because I was called. Why were you called? Well, I was called because I was chosen. Why were you chosen? Well, I was chosen because it pleased God to choose me. Why did it please God to choose you? And there the door of revelation is closed. And there we learn to worship. And we have to say, I don't know why it pleased God to choose me. Frankly, 
I don't know how it could please him to choose me. But it did. And because he had chosen me, he called me into the fellowship of his son. Oh, folks, we stiff reform types, I think sometimes, ought to lead in the two-handed charismatics. This stuff ought to just revolutionize our devotional life, that we never get over it. That God has favored us in a way that he has not favored the world's elite. We should be able to go from every reminder of this and singing with all of our hearts, Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Let's sing that before communion. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul. Thank you, Lord, for making me whole. Thank you, Lord, for giving to me thy great salvation so rich and free.